This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, I am interviewing Charlotte McLean and Chapel. She is the Global Disability Advisor for the World Bank Group, where her primary focus is disability inclusive development under its twin goals to end poverty and promote shared prosperity. Before joining the World Bank, she served as USAID's Coordinator for Disability and Inclusive Development. Appointed by President Barack Obama in 2011 to lead the government's efforts in disability inclusive development. Earlier in her career, she was appointed by President Nelson Mandela to the South African Human Rights Commission, focusing on social and economic rights, disability rights, and also child rights. She holds multiple law degrees in international law and administration from the University of Warsaw, Poland, and Cornell Law School in Ithaca, New York. Here's our conversation. Thanks, Mugi. It's really great to be on, on your podcast and also just a, um, a, a thumbs up for your book. It's fantastic. Um, it's become my gifting book. So, you know, just putting in a plug for you there, Mugi. If you read my resume, it, 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 it might sound, you know, quite impressive, but I think there's a lot about my resume. There's a lot that's not on my resume. And I think what it, what's not on there is how, um, how dedicated I am to family that I'm really about family, that I'm really about community, um, that I have immense love for people. Uh, and that I'm, you know, I think people think of me as an extrovert and perhaps I am, but I kind of think of myself more as an omnivert. I'm it kind of between being an extrovert and an introvert, but I think it also depends on the situation. Mm. Um, so I can coil, I can coil in very quickly. Um, what else does my resume not say about me? It definitely doesn't tell you that I love the arts. I love music. I love jazz. I am an avid reader. I'm super curious. In fact, when I was a kid, I was told that I was too curious, that I liked things, you know. Um, but that's just how I am. And I think in some ways that's been very good for me because it's made me always want to learn more. And then I think more seriously and more fundamentally to me as a person, um, it perhaps comes through by way of my CV, but I'm absolutely committed to justice. And I think related to that, I'm a feminist. And I, and I think that also comes through um, in some ways. Um, like me, you are, you know, uh, South African and American. And so you, you have you have the the same similar background to me, um, but your parents were married at a time when interracial marriage was illegal back at home, um, and 
I want to know how you think that affected you personally and politically. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question. And I think, you know, like you um, straddling these two, um, these two forms, these two heritages, I know that as a person, as a woman, I'm proudly rooted in my African heritage. Um, and, and, I, and yet I recognize, you know, and I, and I recognize being an American. Um, I've never had to pick one over the other, which has been really important for me. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, how I grew up and the fact that I had uh, parents that were interracial um, and, and at the time, you know, could not live in South Africa, I think it's hard to say how that impacted on me personally, because my parents didn't live in South Africa. And they didn't live in South Africa because of apartheid. Um, given that my dad was white and my mother was black, their marriage was considered illegal under the, immor- uh, the Immorality Act of um, 1927. So, so you know, I this was always something that I was very conscious of. Uh, but what that meant was that we lived in different parts of Africa. And in some ways that was so, so enriching and fulfilling. Mm. So I grew up in Tanzania, in Zambia, in Lesotho, um, and then, uh, and actually that's where I met your mom. (laughs) And then I went to school in Swaziland. Um, And so, you know, that's just to say that it's often difficult to separate your personal from the political, right? Um, On the political front, you know, my parents were really involved in, in the struggle against the party. Uh, and this just became part of our family. We talked about this at the dinner table. Um, I read a lot about the evils of apartheid. I listened in on conversations between my parents and their friends when they talked about what was going on in South Africa. Um, but I think broader than that, broader than just the, the anti-apartheid or the struggle against apartheid, there was a very strong sense of um, fighting injustice in, in, in our home. And, and so, you know, we, we were dragged, perhaps not willingly, uh, to anti-war demonstrations. Uh, we were taken to rallies for, human right, for, for women's rights um, and, you know, all sort of fundraising events for uh, different aspects of human rights. So, you know, many of these things, um, stuck with me this is what shaped me this this is this is what i grew up with but i think what what i when i look back i also recognize that in so many ways i was fortunate to have grown up in in an african country that was uh relatively recently independent in zambia and at the time zambia was booming it was boom time copper was it was at its peak in terms of you know commodities and there was so much there was so much um, energy, like positive energy um, in Zambia. And there was very strong pride of being, you know, newly independent, of being African. And so it was just overall a really good time. And and what that time did for me was to expose me to my parents' friends who were black, who were brown, who were white. And, you know, they were professors, they were artists, they were preachers, they were teachers, revolutionaries. And you know what that allowed me to do was was to dream, right? To, to dream about how 
people could be who they wanted to be and be who they were in their skin. Um, it was also a time, you know, in the 70s where you had all these beautiful aunties <laughs> that were beautiful, but also, you know, just badass and successful. And so, you know, I, it was really easy for me to just love my skin and to be proud of who I was. Um, and so, you know, when I reflect back on that, I, I recognize that, you know, it was a relatively privileged life, um, but one that I would never trade for anything. And I, and I think, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't living in South Africa. We were living outside of South Africa, but in many ways that set me up, I think in a, in a really very positive way. And, and, and it enabled me to just learn that the color of my skin was never, never the determining factor of, of how I should be treated or how I should treat anybody else. Mm. So, you know, for me, that was, it was very, it was very, it was very strong and a very empowering um, childhood. But I'd say that when I, by the time I became a teenager, I became quite aware of many of our neighbors, um, just interactions with uh, white people that flaunted their whiteness, you know, that kind of used their whiteness as a, as a badge of honor almost, right? Um, and a badge of honor that kind of bestowed um, greatness on, on themselves. And, and then I started to ask questions and, and started to think about, about, you know, what this means. And, um, and I was completely and absolutely determined that I, as, as a black woman, that I would never allow um, this, the status of inferiority to be, you know, cast on me um, or to assume any sense of worthlessness. Um, so I was, I wouldn't say I was an angry teenager because I don't think that that's the right um, word I'm looking for, but I was very, I was very aware um, and I was very confident um, and, and very proud and very proud of who I was. Well, so you sort of led me into my next question where you, you weren't living in South Africa, you know, you, you all were living in exile um, and I, I spoke about how you are South African and American, and so your your other home was a home that was, you know, not ahead of the curve, and so was supportive of apartheid. And I wonder how that makes you feel when you have these two identities to sort of straddle, as you said. Yeah. So I mean, I think you know, for us, um, you know, home was Zambia or Lesotho or wherever we were li living at the time. Um, you know, the States was somewhere where we went on vacation and we did, we, we visited regularly. Uh, my father comes from the Midwest and so we would go to the Midwest, but it was very much a place that we went to visit, to see family. Um, but it was never really, it was never really the place that I called home. Um, I mean, I chose to make it my home later, but that was my choice. Um, and so it was interesting because I think, you know, we could recognize the, some of the similarities between America, between the U.S. and South Africa um, and recognize that um, issues around race were very much uh, were, were, were very central in, in both societies, um, but also recognize that having an education was 
was a really good way to to help you address some of these issues. Mm. So you were in a car accident that left you with your disability. Um, and I have a few questions around that. One is, what was your initial response to your accident? And then from there, what moved you to, you know, where you are now? So I think my initial response to the accident was just shock and horror. I mean, I was, it was awful. You know, there were no words to explain it. Uh, you know, I had one minute I had left Johannesburg in a car, have a crack, car crash next to my, I'm in a hospital somewhere in the free state um, and, you know, in very critical, very critical condition. I had punctured lungs. I had a severe spine. I had many other injuries. And basically the doctors had called my parents to say, look, you better come now because there's no chance that she can survive. Um, so, I, so, you know, once, once I got past that stage, so I guess I fought, I must have fought. Once I got past that stage, I was angry. I was like, why, why me? What's going on here? Um, and then I was also afraid, afraid of, you know, what, what does this mean? What does this even mean? And, you know, I, I was also in that space where I, I couldn't even imagine, like, I didn't know anybody with a disability. And, and so just not even having that context to absorb this, this new situation was, was, was quite terrifying, actually. Um, but I think in many ways, or in some ways, maybe not in many ways, in some ways, my accident was, was almost redemptive. Um, and I think the, the reason I say that was that what I did was I channeled some of my fear and my anger into really looking at what I can do. And, and I just harnessed it, right? Um, and and you, I think there you see kind of the power of anger and how that can be used for good. Um, but I also, also think that what was really important was that I was completely surrounded by, by love, by everyday Ubuntu, you know, um, where people just kept on coming. And I just had these support systems that was so incredible that in some ways I just had to get through it. You know what I mean? There was a sense of you, you've got to do it. Um, and then I think there's a part of me, a very strong kind of sense of my person that I just never give up. And so I didn't. And I would go through bad days, really, really horrid days. But I just kept on going. I just kept on going. And I think I got to a space where I kind of hit my sweet, my sweet spot. And after that, I think I was kind of on fire. I was just like, well, you know, I mean, if I can survive near death, then I've got to make it work. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it definitely was a phase that enabled me to grow in ways that I probably wouldn't have grown had I not have had I not had to deal with the traumas of being in a car in such a in a, such a serious car crash. Was there sort of, you know, be, you spoke of Ubuntu and the love, but was there a, a quote or a mantra or something that sort of sustained you in these moments? So I think there were lots of quotes. And, I mean, oh my goodness! I think there were lots of quotes and uh, things that sustained me in that process. 
Um, and when I think back of when I think back on those, I think about um, somebody like Helen Keller, who was I mean the woman was prolific. It seems like every time she spoke, she came up with an amazing quote. But I really liked her quotes around it's a terrible thing to see uh, and have no vision. You know, and I started to think about that and think about, you know, here I am, I've had this car crash. Um, I've lost the, the I've lost the use of my limbs, my legs, but I still have my brain. And I and I, and so I can I, I I can think, I can have vision, I can, and that gave me my power. Uh, so for me, that was very very strong. Um, and then I also remember reading at the time because I was in hospital for like nine months. I remember reading um, Maya Angelou. And one of the quotes that I really that really stayed with me, and I still use it as my my kind of my touchstone quote, is her quote on "Do the best you can until you know better," and when and when you know better, do better. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I have some of those quotes uh, that keep on coming back, and then closer to home. I think the quote, the quote of Watinta Abafazi, Watintum Bogoto is for me also a strong one, right? Um, so just very, I think, focused on uh, strength and focused on learning and constantly reinventing yourself and doing better. And so, you know, I in the beginning, I mentioned your impressive resume. So I think I should speak a bit on that. Um, from 1996 to 1998, you served as a project officer on child protection for UNICEF. And I'm interested to hear, you know, what that entailed and, and was there something that drew you to child protection? So, you know, I've never really given it too, too much thought in terms of why I, why I focused on child protection, uh, I, you know, um, per se. But I think on reflection, what what that space allowed me to do, the space of child protection, was to really live out my anchored sense of justice, um, and it enabled it enabled me to think about how to empower people, and in this case, children who are often who are often not always often more uh, vulnerable. Um, but I think it was also it was also a, le a lens which allowed me to to just think about how to to recognize the potential that I see in all humans right and and wanting to be part of that process of nurturing and and growing people uh to become to become their best persons um and then I think the other attraction and I think this was more of the real reason I I went into that space was that for me, ultimately, it was about human rights. I had studied um, the UN Convention on the Rights of Children with Disabilities when I was in law school, and you know, I was determined to go beyond just this notion of of rights on paper and and a treaty, but really to start thinking about how we breathe air and life into into this convention, um, and and then ultimately how we work to trans you know to transform lives. And so for me, this 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 area of work really sat well with me. Um, and I think 
in doing that work, I was very, I was particularly deliberate about working and, and exploring the needs of children that were furthest, furthest left behind, right? So looking at children who were either in trouble with the law or children who, ex who had experienced uh, sexual violence, uh, children who were uh, disabled, uh, children who were experiencing extreme poverty or children who were refugees. So really trying to look at the, that cohort of children that are typically not included in the mainstream policies and, and funding um, processes. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it had a lot to do with my, my approach to life, which is very, um, very focused on looking at justice and addressing issues of inequality. And then, could you please tell us how someone gets not one, but two positions that they're appointed to by the first black president from South Africa and then from the US? <laughs> okay, well, Mugi, just, just to say, I never set out to do this, like never in my wildest imagination. We're still curious, we are curious. <laughs> I would never, I mean, just this was never on the cards for me, right? I mean, I. I mean, I dreamed big, but I never dreamt this big. But you know what? I think some of this has to do with my um, my unbridled passion for the for, and my dedication to my work. Um, and I think it was about being determined to do what I believed in doing, um, whether it was doing research on children's rights, which was what the case, which was the case in South Africa. Um, and then just being really unapologetic about speaking my truth, right? And showing up and just using my space and to to talk about the issues that I had believed that I that I believed in, but not just believed in, but that I had studied. So I had research, I had evidence. I was working in a think tank. I was I was doing the work. Um, and and that then led me to uh, the appoint led led to my appointment as a human rights commissioner, which was ultimately made by by President Nelson Mandela. Um, so I mean, I think that that it, it's I think it speaks to my drive and my passion. Um, and then I think it was also just a little you know there was a, a sense of I was um, just fortunate to be able to be in in that space and time. Um, in the case of the U.S., again, I was I was definitely not looking for it. I mean, in fact, at the time, I was I had a job. I was very happy in the work in you know in the in, in the working environment that I was in, um, and I had never really thought to serve in in the U.S. government. But you know, if you get a if you get a call that and somebody says, "Would you be interested in a position?" Um, that would be the first of its kind, um, and it's under the first black president, and it's on an issue that you're passionate about, and you have worked on so hard, so you've worked on for so long and so hard, um, you're going to say yes, right? And so, I mean, in, for me, it has been such a huge honor to be able to um, take these take these um opportunities um and 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 use them hopefully in furtherance of of rights um and also just recognize that you know 
this work is so much bigger than me. And that, you know, I was I was appointed to do this and it, it could have it could have easily been somebody else. Um, so it sounds it sounds really great when you say, you know, appointed by two presidents, but I do think there's this as I take a huge amount of um I'm very humble about that because I, I think that it could have been anybody, it could have been somebody else as well. So I think we can, you know, both agree that there's a lot of injustice in this world. Um, and I, I think that no matter how much, you know, we think we're each fighting for justice, everyone has their blind spots. And I would say one of my blind spots is probably disability rights. And so my question is, what would you say to a room full of able-bodied people about the things that most place barriers in the way of people with disabilities. And I want to caveat by saying, and your answer can be, you know, they, we should educate ourselves because if someone asked me this about Black Lives Matter, I'd be like, well, read a book. There, there are resources out there. Um, but I did want to ask you that question. Yeah, no, and I think your, your response when people ask you about Black Lives Matter is exactly the one that I would give. But I think for disability, because the issue is um, so unknown, and I feel that I have a responsibility to um, address the issue of disability rights. I would say to a room full of people who who don't see this as an issue that first of all, um, persons with disabilities make up fifteen percent of the world's population, and it's probably higher if we were to have really good measurement um, tools in place to actually. Um, monet to actually determine whether a person has a disability. So, so the numbers are big. I would also say that disability, like your race, your gender, your sexuality, is part of our human diversity. Um, that it's not going to go away. If anything, most people will experience disability in their lives at some point in time, right? Because it's 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 part of our life cycle. Um, I would also say that, you know, most people have a family member or, you know, a, a relative who has a disability. Um, and so it, it's really important for us to think about how we include uh, persons with disabilities. And then also, I think the other point I like to stress when I talk about disability is, is that, you know, we all have multiple identities, right? So, you know, I am black, I'm female, and I have a disability. Um, and I don't see myself being put in any one box. I straddle those three identities, I think, pretty well. Um, and so I think it's important for us to think about disability as just part of who we are as a people. Um, and to recognize that People with disabilities typically are not looking for, uh, well, they're definitely not looking for pity. Um, they're not looking for sympathy. I think most people with disabilities are looking for opportunity. Uh, they're looking for agency. They're looking for voice. Um, and they're just, you know, trying to trying to lead, lead, lead their lives. 
Um, and so I think it's about really trying to see and not to see past their disability because this is you can't it's like saying to somebody oh i don't see color no you do see color of course you see color so you will see the disability and in some instances you may not because if a person has an intellectual disability or invisible disability you might not see that but it's it's about being able to interact with people based on their characteristics and uh, how they how you connect to them as opposed to how they look to you. Um, and, and then also, you know, moving away from othering people and thinking about persons with disabilities as being either, you know, different from you. Um, I mean, I feel that it's beginning to change. Um, I think the, the inclusion of persons with disabilities is, is, has changed even in the last 20 years. Um, a lot of it has to do with the introduction of strong legislation like in the states with the Americans with Disabilities Act, globally, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, in many countries, um, you now have uh, legislation that protects and promotes the rights of persons with disabilities. So we're beginning to see that legal um, enabling framing framework for uh, persons with disabilities but what we need to see more of is the the attitudinal shifts, right? The mind shifts, the the sense of you are part of who we are, um, and again, not that othering, or in some instances, um, fear. You know, so so there's a lot more work that we need to do to educate um, each other, and here I think it's really about educating each other, and then I think you know. I also think there's a responsibility for those of us who are in a position who have the knowledge uh, to call out ableism. You know, so jokes about persons with disabilities are not funny. Um, I think the way we use language is also really important because that can, can certainly, uh, certainly other people. Um, so I think it's about being, you know, conscious and um, the fact that you raise it in this discussion for me is, is extremely encouraging. You spoke a bit about the um, the changes you've seen. And I watched a TED talk that you did in 2016, I think, where you said that exclusion is omnipresent for persons with disability. And so I'm wondering in your time working on disability rights, if there has been something that you see as the biggest improvement so far? Yeah, so I think the greatest improvement has been the recognition of disability rights as part of human rights. So I think, you know, the entry into force of, of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities um, has been transformational. Uh, so that, that's been a very important step. Uh, you know, as I was saying, it's allowed then for legislation to 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 um, to come into force in various countries. But beyond that, it's also provided a sense of um, wholeness, a sense of recognition for legal recognition for persons with disabilities. Uh, you now have a convention that provides rights and protects you um, and and makes you makes you full human in air quotes. And so I think that that to me is probably the most important um, 
piece of legislation of, or, or treaty uh, as it relates to persons with disabilities. And that then has served to um, influence the way international agencies, bilateral agencies are thinking about um, international development. So increasingly you're seeing, you know, some of the bilateral donors thinking about what disability inclusion means and supporting that. You're seeing at country level very strong organizations of persons with disabilities. And 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 really it's the coming, it's it's the the aid you can see the agency um, and, and the voices are emerging of, of persons with disabilities and increasingly they're young and they're female. And so that's very encouraging. I do think that we need to, a lot more work needs to, to happen to ensure that when we look at those emerging voices, that they're representative of um, various demographics, because quite frankly, if you look at many of the leaders within the disability, uh, the disability movement, uh, certainly in the United States, it's very white. And so I think we need to think about how we empower young black people with disabilities to to start to take on these roles. I mean, they're they're emerging and they're there. And some, you know, I'm not saying there aren't any, but there is a lot more space to for them to to come into, particularly on in the international space. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there have been some big, big steps, but again, there there's so much more to do, Mungi, so much more to do. I mean, we still hear of how person, you know, young children with disabilities are um, tied to beds, um, you know, they're not allowed to leave their homes. Uh, there's still a huge amount of stigma and shame in families where they have a child with a disability or a person with a disability. So that needs to that needs to change. Breaking, you know, breaking that stigma and, and doing away with that shame is really important. Um, and that requires us talking about it like we're doing here today. Uh, but also just changing the way we project um, what a perfect human being looks like. You know, so, I mean, I think when you look, if you turn on the television, eh, you hardly ever see a person who's disabled. We're beginning to see a little bit of that now, but you need to be able to, you need to be able to self-reflect. You need to be able to see that there are people like you. Um, in the sitcoms, in you know, in, in whatever it is that you're watching. Um, so I think there's a lot more that needs to happen in terms of making the making media a lot more representative um, of persons with disabilities, and also holding the media accountable for stories that often appear in the media that present persons with disabilities as kind of like the super, you know, the super crip the superhero um and yeah they're so strong for being able to do this that and the other exactly that you know oh you know such great you know inspiration well i'm not sure that it's inspiration it's maybe just getting up and doing my job so you know what i mean it's just turn it's it's changing the narrative around how you how you how you look at how you frame 
the discussions around um, disability inclusion. And I'm heartened to see some of the, the discussions that are happening among younger Black, not only Black, but younger persons with disabilities, where they're beginning to, to do that and they're taking ownership and they're beginning to write their own stories, um, you know, develop their own characters. And so, you know, there, there's hope. So then what is the most important part of your work at the World Bank to you? So I think my most important part, the most important part of my work at the bank is um, is to be able to get others to see the importance of including disability in their work, right? And I think the the value added of being in a place like the World Bank is that we have access to scale. Our projects are, you know, our projects are huge. We support huge government projects. So if I'm able through my work um, and those that work with me to influence a project that's looking at education in Rwanda and introduce a facet to that project that is inclusive of children with disabilities, then for me, that's that, that's what's really important, right? It's It's about being able to find ways to institutionalize it, to build it into the DNA of international development, um, to make it part of the way we do business as opposed to, oh, that's something that Charlotte does, you know, go and speak to Charlotte on disability, but really trying to, to get people to understand that this is what good development looks like. That good development means that you're looking at um, non-traditional groups you're looking at the areas that are a lot more complex and you're thinking through different ways to make sure that they can be included. Um, and that requires some learning. That requires uh, people to understand what you're looking for, who you're engaged with and how to address it. And so some of my work has been around providing those trainings, but also a large part of that is developing the analytics. An institution like the World Bank is really strong on evidence, on evidence-based policies. And so it's not it's not sufficient for me to say, oh, you know, it's, we've got 15% of the world's population, let's include them. I need to be able to nuance those arguments and provide evidence on on how it will work and 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 why we should be doing it. So I think for me that's been a really um kind of central part of my work and just seeing, just being able to sit back and see, you know, somebody else, a task team leader, take it on and really transform his or her project to think about disability in a very central way for me has been extremely, extremely gratifying. Um, and it's happening. It's definitely happening, but it can happen more. So I've still got a lot more work to do. Well, with that, what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? And, you know, what kind of things are you doing to help stop that fear coming to pass? So my greatest fear for humanity has probably got to be around our, our inability to be empathetic. Um, I think there's so much value in us being 
more compassionate, more caring of each other, um, more willing to listen, more willing to recognize our differences, but then finding spaces to to also think about what our what are our commonalities. Um, and I feel, and it might, it, you know, and I think it's very much a factor of the times that we're living in with COVID-19 and, um, you know, the, ra the racial um, injustices of, of, of America today that make that seem very tenuous. Yeah? Um, but I think that, that we, we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of our humanity, that we are deliberate about maintaining those relationships, that we insist on listening and and talking, um, because I think that's so important. I think too often what we do is we either don't listen to each other, and I mean really listen, um, and that we talk at people. Um, and so I think finding those spaces where we could we can truly be authentic, um, but also find ways to develop solutions, charismatic solutions that work for all, I think is really important. Um, and again, here I'm I'm encouraged by what I see um, in terms of. Uh, some of the in terms of um, youth engagement uh, in 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 the in the racial reckon, uh, reckonings of this country, um, it's young people, uh, young people from different races are out in the streets. They're talking about Black Lives Matter, and I think this is really important. And and like I was saying earlier on, I think what we then need to do is how to how do we find ways to harness this energy, harness this energy so that we're talking about um, race relations, that we're talking about climate and, and climate change and what it's doing to our environment, um, that we're talking about uh, corruption, that we're talking about refugees, we're talking about migration. So I think there are lots of areas where we still need to find platforms where we can share authentically and um, come up with solutions that will bode us well for the future. And then what is your greatest hope for humanity? <laughs> My greatest hope for humanity? Well, I mean, at this stage, it's you know kind of to get through this um, pandemic. Um, and I think we will we will get through this this pandemic, um, but yeah, I mean I think my greatest hope is that we nurture our environment because that's actually really really important. Um, that we really find ways to to love our neighbor, um, and and that we we really put our our best foots forward our best foot forward, and. Um, yeah, work, work together, work in community, uh, work as collective, um, work and recognize the power of the collective, right? Well, on Charlotte, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast and speaking with me. 
Thank you, Mungi. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.